but in the time I, I stalked poor, I was like almost getting a restraining order at Porsche because I was there almost every day begging for a job, beg, 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 please give me a job. And finally they're like, well, we have nothing for you. I'm like, whatever you put me in, I'll be the best at it. So I actually started cleaning up the bathrooms. And then right after that, they put me into the dyno shit. So the way I got my job actually there, Alvin Springer, he's the guy who helped. He, you, if you've heard of Andile. So it's Alan Dieter and Arnold. He's like, what the fuck do you know about cars? And he was very brash. I'm like, well, I know this, this, and this. And he goes, what do you know about what we're doing here? Why should we hire you? And I said, because I'm going to have your job one day. And he, he looked at me. He goes, let's hope so. And he walks off. And then he told Uwe, who was his predecessor, said, hey, um, hire that kid. Did you believe that when you said it? Oh, yeah, 100%. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris and Jake is not here. He is still somewhere sunny and comfortable, but have no fear. We've got uh, Batim Barisha of BBI Autosport in to take his place. We've got a great interview talking about how obsession leads to entrepreneurism, which leads to a lot of success and future opportunities. It's, it's a really, really great interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. But before we get to that, let's hear about Petrobox. Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, and the Petrobox Premium, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get six dollars off your first month what's going on man it's uh, my pleasure to have you on the podcast how are you great great how are you doing i am doing well it looks like you're in the shop probably taking a break from doing a little bit of work just got out of a meeting uh welcome to get out of the, that meeting and now uh <laughs> now i'm gonna spend some time with you <laughs> well hopefully this doesn't feel like one of those meetings this isn't a meeting a this is a this is a this is a fun one yeah this is this is good so bbi man like I was out at the shop. Um, my buddy Jason Whipple brought me out there, and we hung out with Dimitri, and I think we met you a little bit, but we hadn't been formally introduced, and we ended up meeting at SEMA right. and everything like that. But it was really rad. I was walking around there and seeing all the cool stuff that you do, and I saw Brownie parked outside, and I want to get to Brownie. I think that's kind of a cool story. Yeah. But before we get into all that, I kind of want to dig into um, how BBI came to be, and I want to talk about what BBI is, but first I want to find out how it came to be. So to do that, I think we need to go way back. How far back do you? I want to talk about. Tell me about uh, kind of your journey with with cars. Was it something that you were always into? Was there a seminal moment? Was there was there a time when you were like, you know what, this is it, cars for life. I'm in. I'm all in. What happened? You know, uh, it's it's a good good question. Uh, yeah, to answer that shortly, I'll answer it in the long form here. But I was always, ever since I could remember, obsessed with cars. As long as I could remember, it was just cars, cars, cars. Every sitting in class, as, as soon as I could draw or write, I was drawing pictures of trucks going through the mud, or or I was drawing um, semi trucks. Back when I think the first, my earliest memories when I was like six and seven, I was really big into like Kenworths and all that. So uh, okay, okay, I was always always into cars, and then um, the love of speed started to happen. Um, 
right. I used to race BMX bikes and dirt jump, and so I think there was and I used downhill ski and backcountry a lot growing up and dude, watching BMXing. Stuff. Like back in the day was was sick, dude. That's I mean it was it was the it was a different time when you would like we had this. Uh, I would bike probably twenty minutes. On, I had a Diamondback, nice old piece of shit Diamondback Riptile is what it was called, nice. like mid school, ninety yeah. three. I was twelve, thirteen years old. I bought it myself. You know, right. it was like everybody else had Haros and GTs. GTs. And yeah. Here I am with this this Diamondback. Anyway, so we you would it would always be this thing where you you bike over to somebody's house, you'd see if they wanted to bike somewhere, and then you would bike over to the track, and it was always this great experience of just like bombing around and zipping around like the the track in the woods that the older kids had built. It was it was an excellent time of life. I think you've just described my childhood from like ten to <laughs> actually ten to twenty. I did it pretty heavily that whole time, but yeah, that's uh seven days a week, rain or shine up in Washington State. We would uh we'd ride. Um, same thing. I had I had a GT at the time, and I was saving up for a PK Ripper. And then Ooh, I had yeah. I, I bought an elf and then broke that thing and we, we had a lot a lot of cool um cool how'd you break it uh, just cased a set of doubles okay okay yeah down to yeah I, I broke a frame right at the neck jumping over a tabletop and just landed blew both tires out broke the frame at the neck and I I was hurt man I was like crawling yeah I wasn't broken anything but man I was I smashed pretty good and I think after that I kind of just didn't do as much that was a pretty scary experience yeah the, the, um i my i retired uh dirt jumping uh i oversaw a set of doubles and landed on my back and blew my whole shoulder out and it was all everywhere and so i was like okay i can't do this anymore i was 20 i was already working on cars at the time i couldn't work for like six weeks i was like i'm broke i don't know what to do i can't do that you know i gotta focus on the yeah. cars but yeah i think i think that you know the lineage between downhill skiing um BMX, dirt bike, all that fun stuff. Kind of the the new outlet was the automobile, right? So I was always obsessed. And now I bought a '67 Mustang when I was 14 uh, for my aunt. Um, and my dad and I, my, he didn't know shit about cars, and we just started working on it. And I actually hold on a second. So this this car, your aunt had this car. Yeah. yeah. Describe this car. Like so what this, color was it? What condition was it in? Why did you love it? Did you take rides in it? What happened? No, you know I didn't really. I wasn't really like a Mustang guy or anything like that, but she had the car. It was white with blue interior, a 67 Mustang with a 289 in it and a four or a three speed automatic. And my dad's like, well, if you like cars so much, you need to save up some money. So I saved up some money and my aunt sold it to me for 800 bucks when I was 14. This was back in the mid nineties. And, um, was your dad into cars at all? No. So he, so this okay. is what trips my parents out. Still, they still come to the shop. Like, I can't believe you doing this, but like they, they weren't into cars. And my dad saw that I had an interest in it. So we started working on cars together. We'd go buy a junkyard engine. We'd rebuild it on the garage floor, you know, and I'd port cylinder heads with, with the Dremel. And, um, I was just reading hot rod magazine and he was, we were kind of learning. A, what was his background? Uh, he, my dad was always a tech. He was always technical. So when we were growing up, he was actually a glazer, like installing windows. Then he started remodeling homes, and then then he went into like biometric or biomedical electronics. So my dad went into doing emergency rooms and bedsides and and tele systems for nursing stations. So he he understands like electronic flow paths, and he's always been sure. somebody who could just figure anything out. Um, and I think I got a little bit of that from him. You know, uh, you know, self interest, dive into the cars, see how they work. Try to understand what's inside the box before you start thinking outside of it too far. Um, that's kind of the approach that he taught me to take on almost anything. And um, so it was a great experience growing up working on that Mustang. And then what happened was 
the Mustang, I was like, oh shit, I broke the engine or I blew a drive shaft, so I need I need money. So how often are you breaking this thing? All the time. <laughs> and it just felt like all the time. And I, I started actually street racing that car quite a bit to make money. And that got me in some trouble, but I, I was making money. So then I had to get a good, honest job. Um, How does one start street racing? You just, I'm imagining this is the this is the 90s, yeah, probably mid-90s, whatever. Yeah, this is, How does one get into it? Do you just like pull up to a light and go, hey, well, hey. Actually. And then you meet each other at the gas station afterwards? There was, there was this, in, in Washington State, there's a, a, a Taco Bell there. And we'd always meet at this Taco Bell. Like just screw around. I got, we were like 16, 17 years old. And every once in a while, somebody with like a Chevelle or somebody would come up and we'd just go down the street and start running. And then one day this guy came up um, and he said, hey, down by the airport, we every, every Saturday night, everybody gets together. It's like a big thing. And sure enough, we go down there and, you know, there's like older guys or probably my age now. But back then, there were older guys pulling their cars off of a trailer, the, you know, tub 67 Camaros and Javelins with 440s and all that fun stuff. And so. I would, I'd go run one, I'd lose a little bit, and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to try to get a, a 351 from the junkyard at Windsor, and we're going to run that thing. And then yeah. you put that thing in, a big cam, and it's all fun, and then you blow the transmission out the bottom of the car. And then you're like, okay, I got to go into a C6, and then you blow your drive shaft, and then the rear end. So it just kept like doing that. And then finally, I got a, a setup that could hook up okay, and I started winning a couple of bucks from, from people, and then uh, we got trouble. How does betting money work? How does like what? How does that? How do you decide who's betting? How much? It's usually the loud. Mouth. It's usually the loud mouth out there back in the day. It was some loud mouth that would call out us young guys, and they. Oh, I got I got fifty bucks that I'd smoke you. Okay, cool. So then you had fifty bucks. So you'd have to come up with a couple hundred dollars, and then then the bets started getting a little bit bigger. And here's a funny part. How of does reputation play into this? I, you know, I mean, you think of like like B fifty two bombers back in the day. Yeah. You've got all the pictures of like all the planes that were shot down on the side, all the, the tick marks. How do people know like I should bet this guy? Do you guys pop? Do you show each other what's under people, the hood, or you keep it a secret? No, you, you try to be you, that's sleeper. You try to be the sleeper and everything like that. And a lot of people, it's just kind of reputation. You get out there, and then somebody like if you did decently well, somebody else would be like, oh, okay, I'm gonna run you next week. Cool. Yeah, then they run you next week and. But what happened there? They're in the garage all night, every night yeah, prepping. And that's all we did. You know, we were tearing things out of our car. I was a lot of junkyard stuff, like trying to go get junkyard finds, like find a find a um, a nine inch out of a Lincoln. You got to narrow it up a little bit and doing all that fun stuff. So this was like I was 16, 17 years old in that time frame. Um, what? The, here's a funny part of the story. Uh, another guy had a. 67 Mustang as well that him and his dad built and he was from the neighboring school um so he came down and just smoked my ass and so I was like oh then this guy and he was cocky just an asshole uh so he came down um smoked me a few times and then we kind of became friends and I tried buying his rear end off him he had a 411 with a posse and he's like yeah okay fine well we ended up long story short uh, becoming like best friends and he actually was an ordained minister and married my wife and I so we met street racing now he runs a wildly successful business up in Santa Barbara um, and just crushing it and we, we, we still bullshit every once in a while um, but it, it's funny that our lives and paths kind of went uh, using the car and, and started really pushing and um, you know made a living out of it an honest living you know, but the reason why I say honest living is because we started getting in a lot of trouble. We started the the street racers were getting shut down. Actually, Jared, our engine builder here, he would always show up on his Jixer. He had a or no, he had a, a Ninja, a Kawasaki Ninja. So he'd always try to run us, and um, we would we'd show up and kind of just hang out together. And 
you know, 20 years later, he's still building engines here. But it, it, it's a kind of a tight bond when you're starting to cut your teeth in the early stages of your automotive life. You know, it's like there's some impressionable times and moments that, that really stick with you. And you say, well, if I can, I want to do this for the rest of my life, but I got to figure out how to do it and make, make a living, stay out of jail, be responsible, stay alive. And, you know, then did you have any run-ins with the law doing it? Yeah. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in the back of police cars, a lot of time at the impound yards trying to get my Mustang out. And my, it, it was up in Washington state. We were, we were in Bellevue and Renton area. And it's just kind of a, back then it was a small town. So like if I threw a house party and the cops that showed up, I would also see them in the drive through at a Wendy's, you know, and they'd be like, mm-hmm. like taunting me or doing so. So it, we, it was almost name name basis. And they're like, just stay out of our way, you know, and you're not going to sit in the back of our car, but don't be an idiot, you know? Um, right. So it kind of had a little small town town vibe, but it was still big enough that you could get out in the woods and find a good straightaway. Um, it's interesting though. You talk about those relationships that you found that you form when you're cutting your teeth. Yeah. And it's different than relationships you form earlier in life. I feel like you're a lot more as you as you age and and move on in life, you become more wary of new relationships. Whereas, like when you're young and you're just cutting your teeth, it's hey man, let's just do this. Yeah, I feel like for some reason that happens less and less as you get older. I don't. Is it because we're more guarded? I don't know. It's, I, it's, I would say it's tough. I would say 100. percent I'm very aware of that too. It's it's you're you're so pure back then, and you're like, well, fuck, you like the shit I like. I like the shit you like. Let's hang out. Let's spend time together. And yeah. then it's not. Until- it's almost like my kids, they go to the playground and they just, the other kid, that's just, it doesn't matter. Hey, you're a kid. I'm a kid. We're best friends. It, whatever. Race, gender, doesn't age, nothing. Let's just play. Push me on the swing. Go down the slide. Yeah. Play tag. It doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I think, yeah, you, you, you get into a situation, you know, you also develop and evolve as a, as a human and you start to, you start to, maybe you have nuances or maybe you see more nuances than other people or somebody burns you mm-hmm. or, you know, you become, sh- but yeah, you start a hundred percent. You start to get guarded. I mean, it's, you look at a young child, like my son's six and seven, he's almost seven, such a pure, pure soul of like, yeah. like he hasn't been burned. He had, he's just this bright shining ray. And then, you know, like yeah. now you're like me, I'm just grumpy. I'm like, uh, uh, no, don't, don't talk to me. Okay. You're kind of cool. Uh, you're probably, want yeah. something from me at BBI, blah, blah, blah. No, you know, you, you can't, you can't, yep. you can't really go through life like that. You know, it's, I try to, I try to be really open with everybody and treat people with the same respect that I'd want. And I, and I like the bullshit. I like to talk. So I think that in the end, the scale comes out. If, I mean, if you're accepting and, and I think the state, you're going to get burned. Yeah. You're gonna, yeah. it's going to happen. But I think at the end of the day, you know, the scale always tips in the, in the favor of the people that are open-minded, but it is, man, it gets hard as you get older. I agree. Anyway, sorry, that's interesting tangent there. No, it is a good tangent, but I think there is a bell curve to that. There's like, every, I'm everybody's best friend, and you're like, oh, I got burned, and then also you're like, well, now I know who I want to surround myself with, and then you, you, yeah. you start to attract like-minded people, and, and it's all good. Like, you and I, yeah. when we started talking at SEMA, I'm like, I like that guy. Yeah. I want to hang out with him. Yep. Um, but yeah, so it's weird how you get that notion for people too. Yeah, you know, it's like when you're in a hotel room and you walk up to the door and someone knocks on the door. What's the first thing you do? People is you look at through, you look through the people and you judge that person immediately. Yeah, immediately it doesn't matter. And I think that's like a that's what you do in real life too. You you meet somebody and you immediately 
for better or for worse, make these judgments about people. And you can, you can kind of get your, like your bullshit detector starts to become, maybe that's what it is. Maybe like you don't have a bullshit detector when you're a kid. Yeah, I think and as right. you, as you grow older, you start to add these little, like these little mods to your bullshit detector where it becomes more sensitive and pretty soon that shit's going off all the time. Yeah. 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 No, seriously. <laughs> because you meet more and more people, then also you start compartmentalizing them. And then also now you're like, yeah. wait, now I'm the person who's all judgy. You know, like this person can yeah. be great. Oh, I'm just, yeah, yeah that's a, it's a, yeah, you got to check yourself sometimes. Absolutely, hundred percent. Sure. Yeah, but yeah, it, you know, let's we'll go back to the cars. Uh, that was a good segue, though. Yeah, you're blowing up drive shafts, putting in Lincoln rear ends. Yeah, yeah, doing all that fun stuff. Um, learning a lot about cars. So, had to make an honest living. Talked to my dad. He's like, "Yeah, you're gonna get in too much trouble. Your trouble's gonna cost you more than you're making." So, I got it. How much were you making on a weekly basis? I, do you think there, there was never it was never consistent, but it would be enough that I needed to buy tools to work on my car, or I needed to get a favor from the drive shaft guy, you know, and that was something that I, I would go work some stuff off. Like the guy who had a, a driveline place, not too far from, he did big semi truck drivelines, but I'd go clean up his shop and, and help him. He's like, all right, fine. I'll burn you up a drive shaft, but you, you owe me a week of uh, three hours a day. So I'd go do that. And then here's my drive shaft. And then I, I did he need your help or did he see something? No, in he didn't need my help. Um, he's just, yeah, he was just like, Hey, here's another young kid. Who's like actually into cars. And, you know, it's, it's fun. And, uh, I, I got a lot of that. I got really, really lucky with people giving me opportunities like that. And then me just jumping on them. And if somebody said, Hey, um, for example, my old boss Ford, I said, yeah, you can work here, but you're going to clean the toilets for a month or two. And then you're going to do this. And I just jumped on it. I was like, in my head, I'm going to try to do it better than anybody. Why not? You know, because I don't want to do this anymore. I want to prove that I'm, I'm I want to prove that I can actually make the proper steps to get to working on cars. Um, but on, on that same breath, I started working at a Texaco gas station cause I needed consistent money and I needed a, a job. And I met two other guys who worked there that yep. were also street racers and they they were badass. They're older than me. One had a 67 Camaro. One had a, I think it was a javelin and they were both fast as shit. So I was aspiring to try to run with these guys. Dude, javelins, man. Small, I have a thing yeah, for javelins. I do too. And I, since then, Ugh. and I remember he had, I mean, when I, when I say quintessential, like, just transitioning from grunge or from a heavy hair metal to grunge, you know, in Seattle in the, in the mid nineties to late, you know, so everybody had mullets, uh, everybody wore flannels and everybody had air shocks on the back of their cars with, you know, 10 inch wide, you know, the, the slotted bags that were all, you know, and then the fenders just burned to shit. Um, so that was the the thing to have. It was like that seventies look, but they're carrying it out into the nineties. And, but that javelin was fast. Uh, High compression, some some 440 I think he had in it with a um, dual four barrels and a root and a hood scoop, and I was just like, this is yes. it. I I want a blower hanging <laughs> out of my Mustang. <laughs> um, so I was working there in the register, and this is kind of what kicked off the fact that I was like, oh shit, I can actually do this. Uh, there was a a manager named Mike who didn't like me at all. There, he just he was managing the back of the shop. Shop would close at six. I'd work till eight. So I'd get bored and I'd just go back there. I mean, this was before cell phones and Instagram and all that shit, right? So you don't log into anything. You read Hot Rod Magazine and then you go clean the shop or do something. So I, I was cleaning the shop up yeah. for about a month and then... Alone with your thoughts? Yeah, just alone with my like thoughts. Like just thinking? Exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I wonder if I put those different jets in there, if that thing is going to be just a little bit faster. I wonder if I... Man, the accelerator pump rod, maybe that's off. Maybe that's what's calling it. <laughs> like all, all this all that stuff, stuff that you're thinking about is just... <laughs> Oh, yeah. I would, I would always, I'd have my carburetor, my Edelbrock or my Holly just taken apart in that gas station all the time. So 
Yeah. I one day, you know, I grabbed the hose reel and my hand was black after that. So I just cleaned the hose, you know, a little bit of brake clean and a rag. And I pulled all the hoses out, cleaned all the hoses and kind of like tightened the shop up a little bit. And that guy, Mike, came in the next morning and goes, hey, who did this? And, and um, the owner goes, oh, but Tim did. So by the time I came in, um, Mike's like, hey, I just want to tell you uh, what you did there, that little extra bit of work. He goes, that, that goes a long way with people. You, you didn't have to do that. And you did it. Uh, and he's like, he showed me like a little bit of respect there and a little bit of like, thank you and gratitude. And I was like, holy shit, this is all I have to do to, I have to just go do work a little bit ex- harder than somebody else next to me, do a little bit extra more than what I've asked, been asked of. And, um, I could probably go places because I had no interest in going to school. I mean, I, I dropped out of I didn't really drop out of high school. I just stopped going. So I guess, yeah, the only reason why I stayed enrolled, in, <laughs> the only reason why I stayed enrolled in high school was because, uh, auto shop and my teacher, John Doherty there, he was rad and he's an ex street racer. And he took me, he taught me how to like set up a torque converter and, and launch. Cause then we started going to high school drags and doing things like that. So by the time my senior year, I was all F's with two A's and I was like, well, school's not for me. My parents were pretty disappointed, but they always knew that I wasn't an idiot. They just said, like, I just don't care about school. I want to do cars. So my dad really mm-hmm. told me, he goes, listen, son, we don't have the money to float you. So if you're not going to go to school, you're going to work and you're going to move out. So, I mean, it, it was great. I mean, I'd still hang out and go eat dinners and love my family and they love me. But um, they, my dad was like, you're not going to be a, a deadbeat. You're going to go do something. And I was like, fine, I'm going to do cars. He goes, okay, well, I don't care how you do it. You have our support and love, but you you got to figure it out. So the gas station was going well, and then after that, I got a job at a, a Ford dealership uh, cleaning cars. And but my goal was to always work at this place called Park Place Motors. That's in um that's in Washington State. I they was really close to our BMX track. So since I was 13, I'd ride I'd ride over there every day and beg David and Butch, please hire me when I turn 16. The day I turned 16, skipped school, got my driver's license, drove straight there with my Mustang. Hey, hire me. They're like, oh, we can't. When you're 18, you can work here. So I'm like, cool. The day I turned 18, I was working at a Prestige Ford, the dealership. I just, the guy, I could not stand the manager. He was such an asshole. I, I just said, okay, cool. Um, I'll be back. I'm going to go to lunch. I just quit and left like an idiot, but I shouldn't have done that because it's a small world. But I went and got that job the day I turned 18 at Park Place. And here's where things accelerated. Park place. I was cleaning the cars, um, you, you know, like parking. They had a, a used consignment lot, so they had a lot of cool shit, like Superformance Cobras. They had uh, they had the Elise contract uh, for for Lotus. They had um, some Caterams there, and then they they had a huge like luxury side. So they had BMWs and all that fun stuff. So my cousin and I got jobs there, and then I proceeded to just talk to the manager and the management there and ask them, hey, just hire all my friends. So pretty soon, all of my friends were working there we're having the time of our lives and we're working our asses off because we all kind of had the same work ethic growing up. There's something about like when you're BMXing, you have to work on your bike and you have to ride it every day and you have, and it's through the rain there. You, you get, you have to start to become efficient with your time because the the sun sets, you got to get it all in after school. And I don't, I I feel like some parts of that helped set like a, a time presence for me, but anyways, got that job. But in the back of the shop, um, a guy named Greg Fordall, uh, ran a like a Porsche tuning shop, kind of a dealer alternative service place, but he also had a race team. And when I say a small shop, I mean it was like probably a thousand square feet, twelve hundred square feet, one roll up door, no office really. And then, yeah. so I would always mess with him. And and this this is how naive I was at the time. 
uh, I'd get off work at eight and they're always there till 10, 11 o'clock at night every time. But he, he lives far away. So he wouldn't show up till about noon. You know, he'd just avoid traffic and get in at noon. So every day at eight, I would just go to his shop and hang out. And I remember sitting at the desk in the front. He shared the showroom with the other dealership. And I go, Greg, how do I get into this? What school do I need to go to? I think that's what I want to do. I want to do what you do. I want to work on these cars. He goes, it's a school of hard knocks, man. That's what, that's how you get into the shit. I'm like, oh, crap. Okay, cool. So I went and asked my old boss. I go, what's the school of hard knocks? Where do I go? How do I apply? And that's how naive I was. I remember that. And I was like, son of a bitch. So he, he starts laughing. He goes, who told you that? I go, Ford all over there told me that. And he goes, you know what that means? That means like you have to eat shit. You have to work your ass off. And no school is going to teach you how to work on a 993 RSR, right? No school is going to teach you how to go change tires over a pit lane. You have to figure it out and you have to start from the bottom. So that's that. I started there about two years. How did, the, how did you feel hearing that? Were you like, was it? A positive thing or a no, negative thing? Were you it, motivated it, no, by that, it, it, or was it? it was, did you see it as a hurdle? No, I I, saw, I I looked at it like it was shitty because it made me feel like that guy's not going to get me. I'm not going to be able to get in through him. You know, it made me feel like he basically told me beat it, kid, and he kind of did. He was like mm-hmm. scram, like you know, I was an 18 year old kid with an attitude who BMX and um, usually had road rash on my face or arms or in a sling all the time. Every time he saw me, anyways. Um, but after two years, I was about 20. And I still continued to go to his shop and clean up after. And we started to develop a little bit of a relationship, but he was very cold. Like, I don't have time for this. You know, like, if you want, go clean it up. And the shop was thrashed. And so I was like, okay, cool. Kept cleaning, kept cleaning, kept cleaning. He's like, it was, no, I was 19. Because I remember I just looked it up yesterday. Actually, I was looking up um, some stats on a 993 GT2 Evo that I, the first time I ever saw run was at mid-Ohio. It was June of 99. And I just turned 19. That's right. And he said, hey, kid, I, uh, I got an opportunity. Come to Mid-Ohio with us. Um, you go ask your boss. We can have, you know, uh, Wednesday through Sunday off. We got a, you know, an IMSA race out there. So they ran a car in GT. Um, so it was GTU. Yeah, GTU, GTO, and LMP1. So it was a GTU as a 993 RSR owned by a woman named Kim Hiskey. And her co-driver was a guy named Randy Popes. I think a lot of people have heard of Randy. Um, so yep. I get out there, my boss tells me, no, you can't have the time off. So I'm on the airplane already. I'm gone <laughs> on, on the way out there. Uh, and all I was supposed to do is like take tires back and forth and go to subway, get everybody sandwiches. And I, I was, I'm listening to these cars rip around the track. First time I've ever been to a, actually a track except for a drag strip. And I was like, what were your thoughts on stuff like Porsche at that time? Was it something were, that was just kind of unfamiliar, but it, like you had it on a pedestal. What was your thoughts of it? So. Because coming from like a street racing muscle car background, it's not really tied to Porsche in any way. I've always been obsessed with Porsches. And I – that started when I was eight years old. And, and I'll, I'll, there's a quick story. My cousin and I were playing, um, playing in his front yard in Bellevue, Washington. And we saw – because we were reading all the magazines. We were obsessed with cars. And we saw what looked like a dark gray Porsche 959 go by. And we're like, well, those aren't in the States. How do how you know is it a kid car? But it looks so real. We chase it down the street. Then we went back and looked at the poster on his wall because he had a poster of a white one. We're like, holy shit, that was a nine five nine. And for some reason, that always stuck with me. Later, I found out when I was like eighteen, working at this dealership, and I, I told them all that story. They're like, they're like, um, listen, that was a that was a gray market car. Bill Gates was driving it, and Paul Allen's the one who bought bought that for him. When I was eight years old, I saw that thing, and that's kind of what. 
<laughs> for Porsche, I was always Porsche. And then this dealership had a lot of used Porsches. The first, the first badass car I ever drove was a 1981 930 Turbo that made about 500 horsepower. It was slammed on the deck. It was, um, what's that darker red? That they, it's like a, not arena red, but it wasn't guards red. It was just a, it was a darker red. I want to say like polo red, but that's not right either. Yeah, that's it was, it was just a little bit of a darker red. It had all black Fuchs on it and like Hoosier tires. At the, I think the time that they were like BFGs, but they were like road race tires. And the thing, I got to drive that car from downtown Seattle at a car show back. And I remember going across the 520 bridge. I was like, okay, I'm going to open it up. And I learned what turbo lag was. Lucky I was in third gear, didn't like swap ends on me. But I remember like on the throttle, yeah. watching the boost gauge creep. I'm 18 years old. I have no business doing that. I have like up to 110, clicking to fourth, and just kept going. I was like, oh my God, this is it. I'm actually getting goosebumps <laughs> telling the story right now because I remember the feeling of hearing the wastegate start to open up. And I just, it, it left such an impression on me. So Porsche was always the pinnacle. Like, no matter what, Mustangs are cool, whatever. Uh, but the Porsche was the pinnacle. So in mid Ohio, the right front uh, tire changer gets sick and he can't change tires. Well, here's a strapping young. 19 year old who's eager i said put me in coach. capable arms yeah i said put me in and he's like okay well we're gonna practice so ford all made me practice every night till midnight the car in pit road and this guy um his name's we call him motec joe he's still on the on the circuit but he would have his rev limiter on his minivan and cruise by at 25 miles an hour like right on my heels and just like trying to distract me because when you're turning and you're pulling tires back you have to keep it within your box because other traffic's coming in. You can get clipped, especially right yep. front on a on a um, on a clockwise circuit where pit lanes on the driver's side. You know you have to be so you're going over the wall past the car. And we did that. My knuckles were bleeding. That whole area is really intimidating. It's it's terrifying. Going over getting like a pit pass and being around it is just I mean, scares the hell out of me. You would know because you're 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 in media. Have you've you've experienced that, right? Yeah. You constantly. I have experienced it, and it's terrifying you're always in somebody's way no matter, no matter what. what you're all, no matter you're, what you do and you're always trying to get like no matter what it's always trying to kill you there's always cars yeah, oh yeah. yeah and you don't hear half the shit loud as fuck can't talk to anybody everybody's got headphones on it's just, it's just a massive amounts of energy chaos. yeah and then you're and you're, you're yeah. yeah like you said you're in headphones and you're, you're you're trying to concentrate on your job but like every single other team has somebody like you there doing the same shit and it's 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 mayhem yeah. it's, it's it's actually it's almost intoxicating it's like I got I, as soon as I went over the wall during the race, I was like, "Holy shit!" I go, "This this is it." Well, luckily, I, I practiced as much as I could. Uh, knuckles bleeding, knees bleeding, everything like that. Finally, he said, "Okay, I think you're ready," and I nailed nailed that first tire change. And then that's what set it off. Where Greg's like, "Okay, you show that you're willing to learn. You show that you're willing to work hard. Um, cool. Maybe in the next race you can come with us." So we land back in Seattle. Go to the, my job. Go to the schedule on Monday morning. I'm not on the schedule. Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> and th Mike, he was a total asshole. He was the, the manager there. Anybody can attest. Uh, he, he goes, what's wrong, son? I'm like, uh, I'm not on the schedule. He goes, no shit. He goes, get your stuff out of here. Beat it. And like, just so it's like really like, come on, I'm a lot kid. I'm making like six bucks an hour. Just chill out. Um, he, he, I went back to Greg. I'm like, Greg, uh, they fired me. I, you have to hire me now. He goes, shit. <laughs> he goes, shit. Okay, well, you'll be cleaning the floors. I'm not going to put you on a car. I don't trust you. All this stuff. Um, but anyway, so he hired me, and I was like, I, that's what I was doing. I was like, it was my job. I took it under my mission to make that shop cleaner, make sure that tools were put away, things were organized, and did everything I could to like do a good job there. Um, 
all of the time I'm kept telling him I'm going to, I want to road race. So he's like, well, probably the quickest way for you to road race is, you know, buy a 944 from the wrecking yard. Cause there's tons of them up in Seattle for some reason Buy a 944. And everybody raced those things in, um, SCCA. It was like, uh, called ITS. Yeah. ITS, ITE was a class above it. I believe I could have those wrong, but, um, so that was my goal Buy a 944 at some point. And then weld the cage in it and go race it. Cause it's pretty, it's a showroom stock class. So it's like stock wheels. You, you can put conies on it. You put a cage in it, a fire system. Can't touch the motor. I mean, you can freshen it. Can't touch it. Um, and then, you know, minor things like you could put, you have to have a DOT style tire on it, like a Hoosier. So we ran Hoosiers. Um, anyways, the point is I'm going to get into Brownie because a year later, I'm like, Greg, I'm, I think I'm ready to work on cars. Like I was working on my Mustang in there every once in a while. And, and he, you know, he's seen that I'm kind of competent, but I, I was not trained. Brown 911 pulled. It's just, it's weird how like working on a Mustang and working on a 911, mm -hmm. they're so similar and different at the same time. I mean, obviously you've got carburation and, you know, you're dealing with some CIS and stuff, which is totally different. They're, it's just getting into a 911 a lot of the knowledge doesn't transfer over no you have to what what do, absolutely nothing <laughs> just to be honest yeah, nothing, it just you doesn't. got torsion bars yeah, so i was like what the fuck is a torsion bar i was like i think i saw one i was trying to relate a mustang and a 911 in my head somehow and i just i'm in my head searching for, no, there's nothing it just doesn't really transfer yeah, over yeah one's got a solid axle one has swing arms like a dune buggy like it's just like you're so different yeah. and I, I but what you do carry over hopefully you carry over you you know your way around a toolbox you can apply some sort of yep. logic, you know, you have to, yep. you know, lefty, loosey, righty, tidy, that kind of stuff. Um, but there was no real, no real, I mean, like on Brownie, I, that, so that car pulls in and Greg goes, okay, you're putting some Coney yellows in the back of this thing. It needs new rear shocks. I'm like, I get to do it. Cool. So I'm borrowing his tools. All right. What car is this? This is a 19. Well, tell, tell us what this car so is. This car is a 1981 Brown SC. It's Brown on Brown on Brown. And it had at the time. Uh, it still does actually had, um, fixie FM five wheels, some 17 inch wheels. And fixie is a pretty cool wheel company up in the, was started by a guy named Jim fixie up in the Pacific Northwest. And he would always be by the shop. And so the customer who owned that own ordered a set of black fixies, well, they screwed up on the anodizing. So they, they turned, um, they're like purple. If you ever seen like worn yeah. out anodized black, it's like purple, yeah. but they're purple out of the box. The owner actually ended up liking them. He was like, oh, they, they don't look bad with the brown, and they kind of, they kind of cool. So, yeah, you know, the car, the car was like relatively stock. The guy would autocross it every once in a while. Um, really nice customer at the time, and I think I was about twenty, right, right about then. This was about year two thousand. Uh, so Greg's like, hey, listen, customer doesn't mind. I'm gonna train you how to put shocks on this thing. And their idea of training me to put shocks on it was laughing at me as I'm doing things and like having to take the heater box off to get to the top of the, you know, the shock mounts and then the car's on the lift. And then the shock is actually the droop limiter because it's a torsion bar car. So I have, yeah. the, I pulled the e-brake on the wheel, on the, on the rear wheel. And then I have a floor jack under the tire trying to get the preload off of the lower strut. And then Greg was like, you're going to kill yourself. This thing's going to like, yeah. but anyways, I ended up changing the shocks and I thought that was special. That was like the first car I ever got to really work on in his shop and then it kind of he's like well you look everything's tight you did a good job then that and it slowly started segue and then i started doing more jobs with him and then and then he trained me on the tire machine so if you can be proficient on the tire machine then you know you're showing some responsibility there and but that was a workout because it wasn't like the touchless ones it was you know the, the irons yeah. and all that and we 
had the race team. So I'm always doing slicks that have been baked onto the wheels and they always run the wheels just a hair tight. So you have to set them out in the sun and there's not a lot of sun out in Seattle, you know, so it was, you had to get creative. So I got, I, I mastered the tire machine at that time. Um, and then I started working on the alignment rack and he's like, all right, I'm gonna teach you how to set things up. But the Brownie, I want to touch on Brownie. Um, that car came back like four years later after Greg moved to a bigger shop. We all moved to, that was three years later. We moved to a bigger shop on the other side of the campus. And um, I was starting to get into fab work and I loved fab work. And at, by this time that car showed back up, I've already bought a 944 for 300 bucks. I already built a junkyard engine for it. You know, I was so in debt to Greg that I was barely taking a paycheck because I would just buy Coney yellows and coilovers for it or, you know, takeoffs. And then I would, um, finally built a roll cage in this car. It was horrible. It was like the, 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 um, a pillar bars came and I couldn't get that angle, right. Where it was a compound angle where you bend it back and then out as it's coming up the, the, yeah. the a pillar. And so it came in far and then, and then I had to bend it back out and I just had to get it done because as I'm building this car, the next day I was going to go try to get my license up at the track. But so anyways, I was starting to fabricate Brownie comes back in and Greg's like, yeah, this guy wants a louder exhaust for it. So I'm like, cool, I get to build an exhaust. So I built this piece of shit exhaust system with two Flowmaster mufflers, <laughs> center exit, and it was so freaking loud and droned so bad in the car, but the customer loved it. So I was like, okay, um, sure. Uh, it was a cool experience. It was all MIG welded, like almost like galvanized piping from from the auto parts store with like the crinkle bends in it. Yeah. And then I started researching, yeah. like, how do I buy mandrel bends, cut it? And we started doing all that stuff. But three years later, I leave. I come down to California to in search of a bigger career. That car then gets sold to one of my friends, John, who's still a real close buddy of mine. Um, also a, a, a dumbass street racer like me back back in the day, and he had a '65 Mustang. Um, so he bought Brownie, and I'd go back up and visit them, and we drive it around. It was fun. I love that car. Ended up selling it like four years ago. He's hey, I found Brownie again. I'm gonna buy it. I'm like oh badass. I go if you ever sell that car, I want it. He's oh I'm never selling it. Never selling it ever. Well, a year after that, he's like, hey, dude, I found a Carrera RS. I'm selling Brownie. I'm like, okay, I don't have the money right now. Um, damn it. I wish I could buy it. Well, two days later, it just shows up here. He's like, send me 10K now. Send me 10K next month. And just try, you know, you're not, you're going to have that car. So now I own the very first 911 that I ever worked on. And it's actually sitting right. That's awesome. I just drove it. I don't know if you can see it right there, but. There it yeah, is, man. Parked in front of the shop there. That's a great car. It's got a great patina. It's got a good look. Yeah, I love that thing. I mean, I, I, I have so much fun driving that car. It's just, it just doesn't make any horsepower. I get gapped by standard traffic, you know, just normal. Anything. A minivan. <laughs> yeah, a mom in a, a minivan. minivan smokes me. But it's just, you know, on, it's on-ramp fun. It's, it's you know, uh, a tired 915 in there. So you're rowing through molasses. And it's it's just, it's great. It's a great driving car. But that's kind of like the story of Brownie. That's I, I skipped out a lot of shit on how BBI have become, has become, and I can I can fast. Well, yeah. Well, let's touch on like what did you get? What job did you get when you came into California? What what was your what were you looking for? What did you, you know, end up with? I was I I worked with Greg up in Seattle, and I came down. We did the tribute to Lama down here in at Willow Springs, and I met a couple other shops and a couple other young guys working in the industry. One of which is named Joey Seeley. I met him at uh, we were both crewing on teams with RSRs. So it's very rare that you had RSRs in the tribute to Lamar back then. They were still kind of on the pro circuit also. And then you'd have two young guys got together and I met his boss who was some wild maniac out of uh, San Diego and we kind of hit it off. And he said, Hey, if you ever move to California, you have a job. 
So um, I Googled where the most Porsches are sold, and I, I think it was AOL at the time. And uh, it was Fort, Fort Lauderdale area, you know, champion. What was your AOL screen name? It still is, spooled67 at AOL.com. Because uh, nice. I, I was, I had all these aspirations of putting a single turbo on on the old Mustang there, so right on. Um, so it, uh, I ended up my what what really happened is I started getting too comfortable in Seattle. I started knowing all the bartenders, all the restaurants, all the people, and then the street racing, and then the cops, and then my mom worked at what is now Macy's, but back then was the Bon Marche, and I used to throw some pretty big house parties too, and she heard some of the girls working. They're like, Oh my God, that party last night was insane. That guy, but Tim, he's so much fun and all this stuff. And my mom's like, okay, that's it. <laughs> so she calls you're me out. She goes, Hey, come over for dinner. <laughs> and she goes, you're giving your boss a two week notice and you're getting the fuck out. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, you're, you're, you're leaving. You're, I don't care that I was like, I, I don't live at home. She's like, no, you're leaving Seattle. You're going to go chase your dream and go figure it out. You're, you're she, I think she could see me getting too comfortable. And I wasn't going to pursue anything. Um, so two weeks later, she jumps in our old Chevy Dooley uh, with a U-Haul truck in my toolbox. And we headed down here. And, she, and then my dad was working a job. So he flew down to San Diego, met us down there. And I I, I got the job with uh, Tim over there. And I didn't have a place to live. So I was living on his couch, my, my boss at the time. Having a good time. But if you can imagine, at, 20, at the time I was 23, a 23-year-old kid who's worked the racing circuit, who's come up from nothing, who used uh, accelerated in a short amount of time from sweeping floors to, you know, going, going and running Petit Le Mans and, and working on these race teams and going over the wall. If you have a, a privateer shop guy try to tell me what I should be doing, how I should work on a car, I, I already knew everything. So I quickly got fired. And then I, I yeah. found myself because uh, you didn't know you didn't know fuck I, all. The older you get, the did, more you know, know you don't, know, or more you don't know. I didn't know shit. And I'm sitting here <laughs> telling all these guys how 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 it is. And I just had a big mouth on me. Mm. Um, and so I, I found myself uh, homeless. And this was right after I just bought, or I you know I bought bought as a loose term. Uh, I think it was like a '96. It was a Mark III GTI VR6. It was like one of my favorite cars. I always wanted one. And I finally I was starting to make enough money. My first payment dropped. And then my boss was like, get the fuck out of here. So um, I was living in that thing for a little while. I came up to – my sister had a soccer game. She played uh, – she lived in, in um, Brooklyn, played for Long Island U. She was like a developing ODP soccer player. And uh, she had a game up here in Northridge, which is just north of L.A., about 30 miles. So San Diego is 80 miles south of me. Northridge is 60 miles north, so I just jumped in the car. Halfway in between here, like 10 miles from here, Santa Ana is where Porsche Motorsport was. And I started meeting all these guys on the race circuit. So Henry, their technical director, I go, hey, can I just come in for a tour? He's like, yeah, sure. I come in. He's putting an engine on the dyno. I'm like, don't you have a guy for that? Because he's the the data guy and running the shop. He goes, yeah, we lost our dyno guy. I'm like, I want a job. And he's like, oh, you did <laughs> He's like, no, you don't have uh, any qualifications. You have no education. You know nothing about electronics. I was like, yeah, but I can fabricate. He goes, we don't fabricate here. We just build engines and dyno them and go to the track and do traction control development and things like that. I was like, fuck. Okay, so I went up to Northridge, came back down, um, started kind of just looking for a place to live. So I was living in my car um, at Huntington Beach State Park down here. And the the 
it was kind of it was cool because I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go swim, and then I'd sw- I'd take a shower in the, the public showers there before anybody was around. I thought I was living the dream. I'm like, just coming from Seattle, I'm living on the beach. I got a cool car, at least until they repo it. The California dream. Yeah, it was yeah. great, and I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want them to worry, but. I met a guy named Dustin who works for Porsche Motorsport. We met at Laguna Seca once, and we became friends. And we, we saw each other out drinking. He goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just, you know, I lost my job in San Diego, and I'm just trying to figure my shit out up here. Um, he's like, no, no, you're going to sleep on my couch. So I, I ended up staying on his couch for a couple months. But in the time, I, I stalked Porsche. I was like almost getting a restraining order at Porsche because I was there almost every day begging for a job. Beg, 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 beg. Please give me a job. And finally, they're like, well, we have nothing for you. I'm like, whatever you put me in, I'll be the best at it. So I actually started cleaning up the bathrooms. And then right after that, they put me into the dino shit. Cleanest fucking bathrooms oh, ever, yeah. man. Cleanest bathrooms. That's it. And then right after, that, they 10 put, out of 10. right after that, they put me in the dino room. So the way I got my job actually there, Alvin Springer, he's the guy who helped. He, you, you've heard of Andile. So it's Alan Dieter and Arnold. Yeah. We interviewed him. Uh, gosh, I don't remember. I think we interviewed him when... I don't know if that's been a while now, but we did talk to him. He's, he's a cool dude. Yo, Alvin? Yeah, yeah. He's, a, yeah, he's absolutely. awesome. Yeah, he's got some stories. Oh, yeah, he does. So he he's like, what the fuck do you know about cars? And he was very brash. I'm like, well, I know this, this, and this. And he goes, what do you know about what we're doing here? Why should we hire you? And I said, because I'm going to have your job one day. And he, he looked at me. He goes, let's hope so. And he walks off. And then he told Uwe, who was his predecessor, said, hey, um, hire that kid. Did you believe that? When you said it? Oh, yeah, 100%. Remember, I was a cocky maniac 23-year-old at the time. I, I truly believe I, I could run the world. I, I, for some reason, I had this innate... It, I got a lot of... I, 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 I had a lot of self-doubt as a younger man in my 18, 19. And then when I went from sweeping a floor in a shop to going, jumping over the wall, tra- changing tires within a one-year period, that I developed a lot of, like, whether it's... A false sense of confidence, but I, I did, which was detrimental, but also it helped me because it gave me that fake it mm-hmm. till you make it attitude. And you have to say yes. You have to just, oh, yeah, you want me to jump over the wall? Fine. I'll be better than you're your guy who's been training for a year. And that was like kind of the attitude I had. It was abrasive. Well, jumping over the wall and failing is a lot better than not jumping over the wall. Exactly. At all. Yeah. And it, was, it was just that, that weird attitude that I had that it helped and hurt me a lot. But anyways, um. Where was I on that one? Alvin Springer. Springer. So I truly believe that I was going to run Porsche Motorsport one day. I was like, just put me in. I'll, I'll do a better job than anybody. Because you don't know, actually, the, you don't know how hard this is. You don't, like, as a young person, you don't know what it's like to get punched in the face and then get back up and try to, like, do it over again and then get hit again. So those are the lessons that I had to learn in a short amount of time. But they gave me an opportunity. So I wasn't going to squander that. Um, I later went to the dyno and I said, Hey, how do I get to Daytona? I want to go. It's February. I got my job in May. In February, I know we have Daytona. We're, we're pushing. He goes, he goes, in a couple of years after you learn the electronics. So I was like, I'm going to learn the electronics in the next three months. I barely knew how to like open my AOL at the time. I didn't know anything about computers. And um, so I, I sat down and I actually still have the. Here, I'll be right back. One second. All right. Oh, I don't have it. One of the guys here at the shop found this, my notebook that I had from back then at Porsche. That all my hand scribbled is a, a binder about this thick of how to open every software system, 
what Windarab was, what Zwis was, what timing tables, knock tables, what, every, every single thing about the architecture of Bosch ECU. I had it, it was just right here in the showroom. I, I was just showing somebody, but um, I just obsessed over learning. I just wanted to learn, 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 learn. And so in February, they actually said, all right, fine, come out. You, you showing us that you understand how to tune an engine on the dyno. You know what to look for. You know how to you give reports. And um, so I went to Daytona. I was like, holy shit, I'm here. You know, it, it's it's the 24 hours of Daytona in 04, it would have been. Um, and uh, it, w- it was amazing. And that, that but, but can you see how a young guy would go from sweeping floors to four years later, you're at Daytona working for Porsche with a white shirt on with your laptop? I had no business doing that. But Yeah, it sounds like you just wanted it. That's all, that's you just it. wanted it more than, more than anything in the world. That's it. And there was nothing in my way. I didn't give a shit about partying. I, well, I did. I had fun partying. I, I, everything was <laughs> secondary to that. And, and I was single. I, my, I had no family around. So I was able to just drill down and, and do this. And I, I dedicated every ounce of my life to being as good as I could at that. And so... Have you seen, just like, just uh, as an, an aside, a sidebar here, as a business owner now... Do you see any of that in anybody? Oh, absolutely. Do you see people with that? hundred percent. And I literally hire people based on the spark and how they talk to me in the interview. Like Bobby, who worked, he's like my MVP. I love this guy. He's 27 right now. And I hired him out of a gas station. And, you know, he got recommended by a friend who worked at a Porsche dealership up the way. And Bobby, I was telling Amy, who works here, I was like, shit, that kid reminds me of me when I was younger. A little cocky. You know, he already knows everything. But, but he shows up. There he is, right there. He shows up, um, and it kills it. He really, really, really wanted to learn, and so I, that's how I hire. I hire people when they really want to be a part of something. I was like, look, you can have my job. It's for sale. If you want it, it's there. But you have to take the right steps to get there. Um, so how do you how do you go from Porsche Motorsport to BBI? Interesting. So I I always. I always want to do my own thing. And one thing happened at Porsche Motorsport. I think it was like in 06. Why? Why, why did you want to always want to do your own know. thing? What was the, I have no like... idea. I have no idea. I had my dream job. I had no idea. I, that's, I still don't know why. I, I sometimes wish I just had a nice corporate job that, just, that I had my PTO and I, <laughs> I did all that shit. And I, but I really, really don't know why. I don't know what I like, – even Joey Seeley, he, he has emotion engineering. He was my business partner at BBI when we started. I'll get into that. But even – like he was always telling me, like, what what are you doing? Why are you chasing this? I was 22, 23 years old. Hey, one day I'm gonna have my own race shop. I'm gonna have my own race shop because I saw other people doing. It. I'm like, shit, I could do it better. You know that cockiness back then. It was just like a, a huge. It was very naive um, because you don't know the nuances of it. Nobody tells you like, okay, you're so good at working on cars, go start your own shop. Have fun making payroll. Right. You go start your own shop, but guess what? Yeah. When you go to Home Depot and you're buying a mop bucket, you're coming over here and you're going to go pick up parts and you got to make a UPS label and you're calling and getting parts. He goes, all of that shit you're not good at. And that's where you're going to spend 90% of your time. Nobody told me that. But anyways, so there was a guy named Gary Topol here in Huntington Beach who knew Greg Fordall from, from Washington State. They were friends. And when Greg would come down here and race, for, uh, Topol would come to all of our race teams. You know, he'd be like, I think he was in charge of fueling. You know, so he was always our fueling guy. So, but he had a shop a couple miles from here. And one day he told me uh, when I was working for Porsche, he goes, well, if you ever want to start, I got the storage unit next door. So I went to my boss at Porsche. I said, look, I've been obsessing over this my whole life. Uh, I'm going to start my own shop. I got enough money to, you know, I got about a month worth of runway. 
two months worth of runway. Um, but he's like, I can't have you quit because I was starting to develop. By, by this time, I've already been to Le Mans twice working for Porsche. In, o, in 05, I went there as the only U.S. representative. We brought three cars there, and we took first, second, and third GT, all American cars. Uh, we had, we just had, we, we pushed so hard on TC strategy and knock strategy and we obsessed over, we didn't just take what Porsche gave us because Porsche Motorsport North America was a subsidiary of PAG, Porsche AG. Um, and we were kind of like the redhead stepchild. Like we would build the engines there. We do all this stuff. We'd get all their software and I'd have to work with their engineers, but I would always tweak and tweak. And there's another guy named Ethan who worked there, who is the same way, just of just a savant when it came down to tweaking these the ECUs to get another couple of miles an hour out of on the back straight at let's say there you know it's like we just we would do stupid things like knock the knock sensitivity on cylinder two and five down just a little bit because they're noisy because the knock sensor is right above it so we're like let's try it oh cool we picked up two miles an hour engine temps went down just a little bit uh, we did weird things like turning the TC off in the pit so you can actually get a good burnout leaving with when you had tons of steering wheel angle. All the little things, I think people started to see what we were doing and say, hey, these guys actually really care, you know? But anyways, fast forward. Um, Gary Topol released me a small storage unit. So I had a padlock, a roll-up door, and, and but that was it. There was nothing. There was no lighting, nothing. So I'd get a – my very, very, very first job at new BBI, it was – it wasn't even BBI at the time, I think. It was just a storage unit. Um I lowered a Cadillac Escalade. Storage unit incorporated. Yeah, I lowered a, I lowered a Cadillac Escalade and put 24s on it for one of my good friends. And and I remember driving that to my boss's house at, who, at Porsche. And I was like, check it out. This was my first job. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? It's like, you're just working on Daytona prototypes, developing traction control strategy, and you're lowering a Escalade. I'm like, I don't care. I made three grand cash. I'm happier than shit. I'm doing my own thing. I don't have to answer to you. But so they asked me to, Porsche asked me to come back. They said, hey, then just come back as a consultant, do all do the 36 uh, weekends a year on the road, you know, with World Challenge, IMSA and um, Grand Am. I was like, OK, so I'm going to work half as much. I'll make the same money. So I had enough money through that job to keep BBI afloat, almost enough money, because then I had rent at the shop. And that's when I left Porsche. That was the next time that I became living on a couch. You know, so that was another two and a half month stint trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And then I started getting weird jobs in and then I'd polish the floors and then I'd paint the walls and I got these metal halide lights off of uh, Craigslist. And then, you know, it slowly built the shop up that way. Um, and that's kind of how BBI started. It was just, we slowly, I mean, and when I say slowly, like I, BBI is almost 16 years old now is, um, so it's been a, been a wild ride and just constant, constant pushing. How, when did BBI become the BBI? I know. Like when was the like what 2008? What happened? Um, I did a job for I, I welded an exhaust system up. I got pretty good at welding. I, I was a pretty good fabricator and I was obsessed with building exhaust systems. So I'd do really nice TIG welded systems. Uh, I, I would always go right when I was in that storage unit, I would always go to a place called Brabus. Uh, they had a showroom here and right by the airport, and it was just beautiful. Beautiful. And I would, uh, I love the old Brabus AMG uh, stuff. So dude. good. It's just like, <laughs> so, dope. so dope. And so <laughs> I would go and sit in their showroom. I'd dress up a little bit, you know, so I didn't look like a dirt bag because I was always wearing dickies and covered in grease. Um, and I would just sit and watch and listen to how the guys talk to their clients. And I, and I would just get a coffee and talk to the receptionist and then talk to their sales staff. And finally this guy, Andreas comes up to me and goes, what the hell are you doing here? I see you here every Saturday. I'm like, Oh, I'm just watching. 
because one day I'm going to have a shop like this. One day I'm going to have something mega. Well, what are you doing now? I'm like, well, I build exhaust systems and my, my, one of this young guy next to me, he hacks and tunes ECUs. He's like, oh shit. Well, the new S65 came out and we built an exhaust system for it and tuned it and charged a shit ton of money, like three times more than I thought. But that's, Andrea said, I'm going to send you a customer. This is what you're going to charge for it. You're going to peel me off a little bit on the back end for commission and you keep the rest. I'm like, holy shit. So I worked on this brand new S65, uh, SL, sorry, it was an SL65. Um, Brabus didn't have an exhaust system for it yet and they didn't have a tune. So we did it. The car hauled ass. We straight piped it basically. Delivered it to him. A week later, the car shows up at my shop and this little dude, really nice guy gets out. He goes, I want to know who worked on my car. I'm like, oh shit. Because I didn't like people Uh-oh. coming to the shop because yeah. it looked horrible. It was, it was, it, it had still stuff stored from like my neighbors who was leasing it to me. His construction site had like concrete bags in the back. And I'm like, oh no, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I even had a lift at the time. I think it was still, uh, we did that on jack stands and with a chop saw. It was great. And then, so I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm but Tim, what happened? He goes, well, whatever you did is perfect. And I love it. And he goes, what the hell are you doing here? I'm like, well, I kind of ta- gave him my backstory. He goes, okay, cool. Uh, I'd like to have a meeting with you later. I was like, when? In a couple couple weeks or something like that. I'm like, cool. Right at that time, Joey Seeley uh, came down from Seattle. I, mi- I, I glazed over how him and I met, but he came down from Seattle because I asked him, I go, hey, I'm starting to get a little bit more busy. I'm going to give you half the company. If you run the back, and let me run the front. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the clients. I'm going to do the book and all that stuff, but you got to, you got to bust your ass. I'm going to bring the work in. You got to make sure it goes out. And so he's like, cool. So we teamed up at that time. This guy, Jeff with that Mercedes invites us over to his house and, and he, he's just talking to us, listening, 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 telling it, what are your aspirations? I'm like, well, I want to go big. I want to this and that. And I, you know, I'm, I know where we're going to go. What are you thinking this meeting is about at the time? Maybe we're going to work. You have to have an inkling yeah. that he, so he, he, you have to know that he wants to put money in no, or something. Had, it's got to be, I thought it was, he had a fleet of cars. And I thought he, I thought oh, he was interviewing okay. us to work on him. And so he goes, I'm sorry, okay. we got to cut this meeting short. I have a, we, I have some, an obligation to go to. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks for having us over. We get out. He goes, no, you're coming with us. We're going to go look at building. I'm going to buy you guys a building. I'm going to own it. I'm going to rent it back to you. And I'm going to set you guys up. I'm going to teach you how to run a business. I was like, holy shit. You got to be joking me. So I ended up having to sell all of my interest in BBI to him. And I was going to earn it back across five years. Um, and he owned the building. And so we were paying rent to him, you know, and so he, he was wildly successful. He came from nothing also, but he had escrow companies. Like I think he had 48 escrow companies and then he started narrowing it down to one. So he had a financial team behind him. So he's like, I'm gonna teach you how to do finances. I'm gonna teach you how to run a business. I'm gonna teach you your checks and balances and I'm gonna teach you all that stuff. But what I can't teach you is what you already know. You just need to grow there. And so it was amazing. I mean, we fought a lot because I was stubborn and, and Joey was stubborn, and we, but we, we got there. And, he, and then at about year three, we started talking. We were actually in the block. We started making some money and, and covering our nut and, and paying back the equipment loan that he gave us. And he, and he said, you know, I've sold like five more of my locations. I only have one left. I know you're going to buy me out at five years, but this is what his plan was. He, depre- he depreciated all of his investments across five years, so he took all the write-offs. Uh, the value, the, the on book value of all the equipment was zero because it already, the depreciation schedule was up. And I thought in my head, I'm like, man, this guy is going to like give us all of our stuff back. Just give. And I think that was his plan. Yeah. 
because he told me, he was like, you know, would you mind if I stuck around for more than five years and we can really just, I can invest in other buildings. We can really just like make this work because you guys have what it takes. I'm like, absolutely. Well, unfortunately he passed away just shortly after that. And then my business isn't in my name. It's not in Joey's name. The family's like, what are we going to do? We just lost our father, our provide everything like that. And so it got ugly. Uh, we kept paying rent. And I remember just like, holy shit, we're done. We had a good run though. What, you know, what are we, time to rebuild. Um, long story short, we were able to negotiate with the family and find a buyer for the building for one of our other customers, bought the building from the family, paid them good market value for it. And then we leased that from them for two more years. And then we paid the family off for the business and bought the rights to the name back. Um, so that was a wild ride, but that, that was how BBI went from shack to a really beautiful shop with an engine building room and all that stuff you know, a guy believed in us and luckily we, we made right by him and showed him that we could do it. And his investment wasn't squandered, which was really cool, but he was one of the most amazing mentors ever, uh, but passed away at 56 from a heart attack. So, um, so that was a challenge three years after that. Joey and I were fighting a lot. So we were like, all right, we got to, we got to separate. We got to, we got to go separate paths. I respect you. You respect me. Cool. There's enough customers in Southern California for everybody. Let's split ways. So we did that. And then that was back in 2015. So he's running emotion engineering. I'm running BBI. And then we start competing with each other and which was cool because like it forces us to level. It's always good to have that motivation. And it always has that, that, that just that little knife in the back. You're like, all right, I'm not going to sleep. Yeah, the spite, dude, spite. I'm not sleeping. Spite is a, it's a, excellent. Oh, motivator. yeah. And you never want to be motivated <laughs> out of spite, but you know, I'll tell you what, it's a good, it's like some good jet fuel for the fire. It works. It does. Yeah. yeah so we, I mean, we still see each other every once in a while. We're, we're cool now. We, we had a lot of like childish beef with each other, but it's, it's all bullshit, but uh, we're fine. But yeah, that's um, in, a, in short. And here we are 15 years later. I. So what, so what do you guys do now? What is, what is BBI? Well, BBI right now, we, our, our business is siloed in four four areas. We have an engine department, so we build engines, air cooled and water cooled. Um, you know, forty percent of our fifty uh, percent of our engines now come from other shops or other race teams for us to build. Um, a lot of times, show up in boxes without cars. That's one. The other side is our parts side. So we sell roll bars, exhaust systems, um, suspension components, safety, all all of the fun stuff for cars to other shops like BBI. So we have a lot of vendors and dealers that carry our, our components. So, and we also have a direct to consumer side. So our website, you can buy all of our stuff on there. The other part is projects and racing. So, um, projects are like long-term projects that, that live on the lift that need a lot of reverse engineering, 3d scanning, machining, all that. Uh, and then the racing side is when we go to Pikes peak, we build cars, whether we're modifying cup cars or we're building stuff from the ground up. And then, the fourth one is install and service. So dealer alternative service and then basic installs of, you know, exhaust systems, all the stuff we sell on our parts side. So that's BBI in short. And we primarily focus on Porsche. I mean, we dabble in other cars every once in a while when a client says, hey, I've got a McLaren. I know you've worked on my Porsche. I would rather you do it. So we'll, we'll do that every once in a while, but it always bites us in the ass. I'd rather just stay focused on working on air and water-cooled <laughs> Porsches. Yeah, sometimes that stuff is about keeping relationships and, that's that's important. Yeah, no, it really is. And then I mean, we have one side of the business that's starting to grow is our consulting side, our consulting and engineering side that Dimitri and I head up. Um, that's we, we're starting to consult for a, a few OEs out there. Um, it's almost like we, we're our agility because we're small and scrappy 
were able to get a lot done in a short amount of time where as a corporation they want to do something, but there's a lot of red tape. It's a big moving ship. It's hard to kind of get everybody to march in that same direction. So they'll, they'll come to us to execute a project quickly or some reverse engineering. And Dimitri and I also own a scanning company called ScanHub 3D. Um, so we do a lot of reverse engineering that way and we apply all that to BBI and then to our clients as well. So I'm having a lot of fun in that silo, the, the, the consulting engineering side. So I have like a couple more things I want to talk about. You got yeah, time? Of course. We got, we're at about an hour. You of got course, time to yeah, chat? Yeah. Okay. So I really want to talk about um, some of the aspirations that you probably have. Uh, but first, I want to talk a little bit about Huna Pegasus and how that came to be and why that car exists and and how did that, because it's a, it's a wild car. It's wild. You spend enough time looking at it. You know, when I was at SEMA, you, you walk up and it was there in the Mobile One booth and you walk up to the car, you look at it, you're like, okay. There it is. I hadn't seen it before. And you kind of look at it a little bit and you walk away and you come back and you go, oh. And every time you come back, you're going, oh, because there's some new shit to look at that's super interesting, especially if you get down on your knees and you get close to that thing. There's a lot of special parts done to that car. I mean, that car is wildly custom. And I don't think anybody even understands. Maybe they do, but if they don't, it is it is insane. How? What was the concept of this car and why is it exist? Great question. Uh, 10 years ago, I met a guy named Joe Scarbo, brilliant engineer, uh, Scarbo Performance. Um, he started doing some back-end engineering for us. And, you know, he was always kind of, to me, it felt like he was a little ahead of his time on all of this stuff. So we developed a relationship, became friends, and he's like, hey, but Tim, i got to show you this project that I've always wanted to do. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, what is it? And so it was, a, it was kind of like a singer, but not pretty. It was a 73 RSR clone off of like a 66 912 um, with a Subaru engine in it, but it was all-wheel drive. You know, it was a rear engine, four-cylinder STI engine, all-wheel drive through a shitty gearbox. And then um, he had unequal length front suspension, you know, like nice wishbone front suspension, rear suspension, billet knuckles. But in the footprint of a, you know, a standard car that had like eights in the front and nine and a halfs in the rear, right? And the car looked, he ran sure. 18s on, on the, the concept of it. And the car looked like a little stink buggish. But when he showed me that 10 years ago, it kind of burned, burned something in my head. And as we're developing cars for Pikes Peak and Autocross and we're, we're, we're competing, you know, in, in some endurance series, um, I always thought about that car. I'm like, man, a lightweight, all-wheel drive, early car. Right, whether it's air cooled or water cooled, seems pretty freaking cool. So we go to Pikes Peak with Jeff Stewart. We meet him. Uh, we build him a car. 2013, we got third place. Then it was a twin turbo GT3 Cup car. 2014, we got second place. 2015, we finally got him the championship in 15 and Time Attack won. Uh, at 2015, that's when Joey and I split ways. So, and then I moved into this building. So I had I took a hiatus from Pikes Peak. I just had to focus on the business and like licking our wounds and getting back to it. We built a car in 2019 called Lucy. It was a, um, it, it, it's a two, 2014 Grand Am GTD Cup car, right? And then we twin turboed it, put put some downforce to it, and really really sticky Michelins, and ended up getting a record, crushing the Time Attack one record by I think like 13 or 14 seconds up there. Um, Jeez. So, but I was always when I'm modifying these cars, I was thinking, man, if we could move the pickup points to where we wanted, if we could really have a lightweight all-wheel drive system, if we could do all of this stuff, holy shit! But I didn't like how high the car sat. So the only way to get the car to sit down, you got to section the chassis, and then you have to push the wheels out because the arc that the hood 
seals on. You know, the fenders, the the, the, the headlights come down, and that arc right there, would, yep. that would hit the tires if you lowered the car too much. So we had to put the inside of the tire outside of that, that real estate. Um, so Joe and I just started going back and forth on this. And I said, I'll fucking kill you if you put a Subaru engine in this thing. So let's build an... So he's like, all right, cool. He started building his own car, and then... We're building. We start building a 996 turbo engine for him, and he got the gearbox and 991 front differential. Starts putting this thing together, and in 2000, I'm gonna jump around. I'm a horrible storyteller, but in 2000, it's, no, this is good. I'm following just fine. 2021, uh, we get an opportunity. I'm gonna put the Joe side to think. We get an opportunity to run three cars: one in Time Attack One, one in Open Car. So one's a in Time Attack One is a GT2 RS Club Sport that we modified to go run. And David Donahue drove that. The other one was Lucy that we, we retooled. So they, they, the cars aerodynamically looked identical, right? And visually they looked identical and that, but that was a, that was an open class car. So it was about 400 pounds lighter, about 200 more horsepower. And then we ran, um, in the, the Yokohama trophy GT4 series, we ran Tanner Faust in a, in a Cayman. So, uh, long story short, we ended up doing first place with Tanner, First place with Raphael in the in the open car, and third place with um, David in the in the GT2 Club Sport. So it was the first time I think a privateer ever brought home three trophies in three different classes in the history of Pike. So that was cool. So Brian Scotto sits with me after that we're interviewing. He's from Hoonigan. He goes, "But Tim, what's what's next? What's next?" I said, "Well, I'll tell you what's next. I want to build what that car is. It's really called as an SVRSR, Scarbo Vintage RSR." I want to build this with Joe and I want to do it for the mountain. So whatever Joe thinks we're going to do, it's just going to be 10 times more than that. Um, so he's like, well, how much is that going to cost? I said, a lot of money. He goes, no, nobody. And he straight up told me nobody's going to pay for that. So Ken Block gets signed by VAG. And all of a sudden, this was like four months later. All of a sudden I go, I called Brian up. VAG, Volkswagen, Volkswagen, Volkswagen Audi group. So he okay. gets signed as an Audi driver. Well, they own Porsche, a large, they're a majority stakeholder in Porsche. Um, so I said, um, what if we get Ken to drive? Can you get it funded? He goes, holy shit, hangs up on me, calls me back. Ken's interested. <laughs> yeah. And we don't have much time, right? So the clock's ticking. So we go to SEMA. I sit down with him. He brings me into a meeting with Mobile One. Mobile One says they're interested. I'm interested. I'm literally drawing a napkin and texting Scarbo. Send me some rendering. Send me anything. Send me a 3D model of what the cage looks like. Anything. And at that time, it was still a rear engine car, and, and we just haven't had it laid out, laid out yet. So, they, they. This sounds strangely like, yeah, I can absolutely tune your car on the dyno. Yeah, yeah. It's. You know yeah. what I mean? You know what I'm saying? This is. This sounds exactly like. Yeah, man, I can absolutely change those tires at the track. Yeah. I can do yeah, it. It's a lot like that. It's, it's a lot of um, it's a lot of jumping off the cliff and building the wings on the way down. Like I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but we we the ground's coming fast and we got to get it done. So you just you just do it. Yeah. Um, and that's been a lot. Yeah. You're you're, you're good observation. So as we're designing this car, Ken Block signs off on it. Uh, Hoonigan signs off on it. We get started. We get our first check in late December. Um. Yeah, late December? No, early January. And we have to build a car and be at the mountain in six months from nothing. So that was hard. Um, but during that time, as soon as we found out Ken was driving, I was like, well, fuck, like 911s are already diabolical to drive at the limit unless you know a 911. Well, he doesn't. Let's, let's move the engine in the middle. And that's when we started designing a mid-engine version. And then the biggest challenge was how do we make a mid-engine horizontally opposed um, platform 
or horizontally opposed engine, all-wheel drive. So the transmission's behind the engine. The the, the front diff's here, engine here, transmission mm-hmm. here. You have to have a transfer case here. And the only logical yep. place is to run the drive shaft over the top of the engine. And that becomes now your armrest because that, it's, it's spooky. I'll, I'll send you a video. I was just on the dyno with the car like <laughs> last week. And, you know, I'm in top of fifth gear on four rollers holding this thing, like wide open throttle. And you can actually feel the drive shaft. It's not vibrating, but it makes this eerie noise that I've never heard in another car. This thing just spinning at like 7,300 RPMs right next to you. It's a lot of mass, a lot of energy. Spooky. But um, anyway, so that's that's kind of how that car came about. It, it was Joe Scarbo's brainchild, and then I just mixed a bunch of crazy maniac shit into it and uh, got rid of the H-pattern gearbox, put a sequential in it, got rid of the Medsker, put the late model M91 or M or 9A1 in there, and then um, put some big-ass turbos on it and you know, we blew the engine up a few how, times. How is it to drive? Have- uh, the car's the car's actually really nice to drive. Um, it's we never for who for you or for me well, or for like my grandma. Like like when you no, say that, for, what does that mean? It's very intimidating when you get in it, but when you start leaning on it, you the car talks back to you. You can feel it doing its things. You can feel the differentials opening and closing. Oh, um, I haven't had enough time in it, but Monday and Tuesday I'm going up to the track and we're going to do a two day test with it. So I'll have a lot of seat time in it by then. Um, but yeah, so what would someone like me, like a regular guy, like most of the dudes that listen to this podcast, just regular dudes, they got a 911 or on E30 M3 or something. If I got out of my 911 and got into this car, what would that experience be like for you'd me? You shit your pants. Could I drive yeah, it? Yeah, you probably could, but it, it, you would you would you'd be overwhelmed immediately by the 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 mechanical grip. Or in the and once you start getting the arrow and you're starting to pull 2 and 3 Gs, it's um mm-hmm. it's one of those things that y- your mind it's like how to I had to actually make my foot stay down on the throttle like I wanted like I found myself backing off because like and the other thing that's funny is like a car that makes that much like I drive like GT3s and and all that on track and right at about and what you see on data right at about 1g 1.2gs on a non-aero car you'll automatically you'll watch my steering input and I start to already start to unwind it because I know that that's going to be the kind of that and in this thing, yep. at 1.2 Gs, I started to do that, but I had to keep turning the wheel in and keep my eye on the apex because the thing just kept going. So it's a, I'm not used to it yet. I'm, I'm probably not the right person to be driving that car, uh, but for testing, it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, so... So where's it going next? What are, what are the so, plans with that thing? What, what's the... Unfortunately, you know, we, we all know Ken's unfortunate ti- untimely passing. Uh, that that, that yeah. really shook us, and I thought... I don't even want to talk about this car. I just want to put it back together and put it in a museum and pay my respect to the family and everybody. Um, but then a couple weeks ago, Hoonigan called and said, hey, it looks like we want to go back to Pikes. It looks like we want to pay homage to him and his efforts and everything like that. And what better way to do it than sending it up the hill, whether it's at pace or even just a, a cool run up the hill. They, they, they just So they're still in the planning phases of that, but... My job now, that's why I jumped on it. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to the dyno. I'm going to beat this thing up. And I'm going to go do a two-day track test, get this thing ready for whoever's going to drive it up that hill. I want it I yeah. want it ready and dialed. I don't want to be in the same position we were last year scrambling. So that's where we're at right now. Um, it's still emotional. It's still like, still weird. Yeah, it's, it's heavy. heavy. And ha- yeah, it makes it makes the prep even more than more heavy than if Ken was driving it. Yeah, it does. You know, it, it becomes serious. Yeah. No, it's... It, it, this this car has nearly killed me so many times in more ways than one, and it's pretty near and dear to a lot of people, and it's pretty special to 
Um, obviously, everybody who's been close to Ken. Um, and then on our end, it's the craziest thing we've ever built is this amazing opportunity that was put together because Ken said, sure, I'm interested. You know, that's literally what it took. Um, so it's day by day on this one. I, I'm, I just want to prep. I want to, I want to give and deliver the best possible car we can, um, in some respect. We'll, we'll see where it goes. I am, I'm sure you guys will do well and I'm looking forward to what you guys do with it and everything else that you're doing. Yeah. And man, I, I really appreciate you coming to hang out with us. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. <laughs> And, uh, it's, it's been some great stories and I hope to see Brownie out on the rally, well, man. Um, I gotta, I gotta apply, don't I? You All do. Right. We'll see if you make Let cut. me know when those applications start <laughs> dropping. I'll, uh, I'm going to fill out like 15 of them. All right. <laughs> Just take like a bunch of pictures of the car from yeah, different that's angles. It. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting. We have like a, on the application process, there's like a little essay portion. Why do you want to come on the rally? Right on. And it, it is, it is people will know, but it's a make or break. You know, there's people with like a cool car that put, man, I, I think it'd be fun to come on the rally. Mm. And I'm like, okay. And then there's dudes that are like, yeah, I'm bringing my dad. You know, we've always, we haven't done anything like this in a long time. We'd love to just experience your rally together. And I'm like, boom, you're in. Even if, even if the car isn't as cool, yeah. you're well, in, dude. That, you know, that's, just, that's awesome. it's, it's the special part. Yeah. When you and I met and we, when we connected at SEMA and you were telling me about it, I was like, that sounds special. That sounds like something that. I want to get behind I, I, because I, honestly, I don't really like going on rallies. I don't like driving with a lot of people. I like being on the track or commuting, you know, knocking mm-hmm. an on ramp off every once in a while. But um, what you, how you described it sure. and what I've looked up, um, that seems special. That seems really, really cool. And yeah, we hope yeah. so. Well, we'll find out, won't we? Well, we'll see you there, man. I appreciate you hanging out with me today. And uh, actually, I'm going to be, I'm flying out in three weeks to pick up my car. Oh, cool. So I'll uh, I'll come by and see you. Say hello. Grab some tacos and a beer. All All right, right, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. See you.